Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Russia's war in Ukraine is just a continuation of a long line of Russian colonial aggression. It's just that now, people are finally starting to pay attention. But the past still matters, and there remains a huge lack of knowledge and discussion about the history of Russian colonialism all throughout the world, particularly in Central Asia. My name is Viktor Iskander. I'm a journalist from Kyrgyzstan. I think I'm most famous for being one of the founders of a media organization called CLOP, which is based in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. I think we are most famous for our journalism school. And uh, throughout the 16 years of our existence, we've brought up like a whole new generation of journalists in Kyrgyzstan. At some point, CLOP also started being known for our investigations of corruption and organized crime. Viktor Skinder co-founded CLOP with Renat Tukhvachin. This was Viktor's gateway into the world of journalism. In 2004, when Ukraine had the Orange Revolution, Renat and I we were one of the few you know, young people in Kyrgyzstan who were very closely following what actually is going on in Ukraine. We were very much inspired by the processes. We were very much inspired by the will of the civil society to actually restore you know, like the fair results of elections and, and so on. We also hated Russia. So we gathered friends and we actually explained to our friends like what exactly is going on in Ukraine as we thought. And I remember we were like thinking, oh, probably it's not going to happen in Kyrgyzstan, something like that. You know, like we are not sure that we are so active. Our civil society is probably not that brave. You know, like we're not going to do something like that. So funny that half a year later, we had a very similar revolution, which was also caused by elections, which was also sparked by, you know, people being very angry at how authorities actually organized the elections and how authorities actually made sure that through a lot of violations, people who were very close allies of the president would be elected into the parliament. The first Kyrgyz revolution, known as the Tulip Revolution, began after elections in 2005. People took to the streets to protest against the alleged corruption and authoritarianism of Kyrgyzstan's then-president, Askar Akayev. The people toppled Akayev, he fled to Kazakhstan and then on to Russia, of course, and resigned in April of that same year. You mentioned that you hate Russia, which I, I'm not surprised by, but when I was preparing for this interview and I was just reading up on Kyrgyzstan, the two basic Google searches that would come up anytime I'd Google anything about the country was, is Kyrgyzstan a part of Russia and is Kyrgyzstan controlled by Russia? We were occupied by Russia in the 19th century. When Russia occupied Central Asia, it was a long process. It started in 1850s, I guess, and then it lasted for the next 20 years or so, because it's a huge territory. You know, they actually made uh, use of uh, Kyrgyz and Kazakh people being divided into many, many tribes, because you know we didn't have like a statehood in a European understanding of what statehood is. So like Kyrgyz people were a union of many tribes, dozens of tribes, who were not 
limiting themselves to any like political borders or something because we were nomads, you know, we didn't need borders. <laughs> they occupied the whole Central Asia. And then in 1916, there was this famous Central Asian revolt against Russia. And it was caused, you know, by Russia trying to mobilize indigenous people of Central Asia to fight in the First World War. And we were like, what the hell is that? Like, I mean, what, we, what do you want us to do to fight Austria-Hungary? Like, we don't care about Austria-Hungary. So basically, people in Central Asia started uh, a revolt against, you know, Russian Empire. It was the first, like, serious, like, huge revolt against Russian Empire, which ended up with Russian soldiers basically coming and killing us, you know. Unfortunately, it's still not known how many exactly people were murdered by Russian soldiers back then, because there is, you know, very, very small amount of data available. Estimates suggest that something between 100,000 and 250,000, those who were not killed, they were forced to flee to China. We call it genocide in Kyrgyzstan. This is often referred to as the Urkan in the Kyrgyz language, meaning the Great Exodus. The Kyrgyzstan government has often stopped short of calling it a genocide, presumably to maintain their political and economic ties to Russia. However, in 2016, a public commission concluded that it was exactly that. But this was not the end of Russia's colonial violence against Kyrgyzstan because the Russian Revolution of 1917 saw the brutal imperial Tsarists usurped by the equally brutal Soviet Union. We were granted the status of republic eventually. But then we, we basically faced uh, same horrors as people from all other you know, republics occupied by the Soviet Union faced. There were many terrible things that the Soviet Union did during that time. Uh, they also, they drew, you know, these borders in Central Asia, which I don't even know who decided to draw them that way. Somebody in Moscow, I guess. We still actually struggle, you know, from, from, from how the borders were drawn. Stalin's USSR implemented another policy over this period with even more devastating consequences. This was collectivization, where the Russian state seized all agricultural land into government ownership in an attempt to distribute the food supply from rural areas to the rapidly industrializing urban cities. In Ukraine, historians agree that this was a major cause of the Great Famine in 1932-1933, the Holodomor, which killed millions and was a genocide of Ukrainians too. The Kazakhs and the Kyrgyz similarly suffered. How could a process of agricultural collectivization ever work for a nomadic people without permanent settlements? So Kyrgyz and Kazakhs were mostly dealing with livestock, while Uzbeks and Tajiks would mostly deal with agriculture. And we would then exchange, you know, like every season, especially before the winter, Kyrgyz and Kazakhs would come down from tallest mountain valleys and uh, exchange, you know, meat for vegetables or fruits or crops or whatever they needed. And then when Bolsheviks came to power, they forced Kyrgyz and Kazakh people, Kazakh people to stop being nomads. Because, you know, they were like, oh, you have so much livestock. Like, why the hell do you have it? You should give it, you know, to the Soviet state. So I have one final question. How come you speak Ukrainian? I was fascinated by Ukraine since I was a kid. I'm not joking. And then I started traveling to Ukraine a lot. Actually, my first city was Donetsk, <laughs> really. That's insane. I was an election observer in Donetsk in 2010 when Yanukovych was <laughs> Really? So that, that was That's my introduction incredible. to Ukraine. And then I spent like a month in Kharkiv in uh, 2012, and then I went to Euromaidan as a journalist. 
So when Euromaidan started, and I think many people in Ukraine uh, still do not realize how important it was for us in Central Asia. Actually, how current war is very important for us in Central Asia, because I believe that Ukraine really fights for our freedom too. Russia's vast size and diversity of peoples means it is not some static, monolithic thing. Its brutal history of colonial oppression has scarred people and lands from Kyiv to Bishkek. And now, the Eurasian lands which border Russia to the south are feeling the aftershocks of the bombs falling on Ukraine. Because this war and Russia's collapse is lighting the fuse on many of Central Asia's dormant conflicts, dismantling any semblance of peace that Russia's neighbors have relied on them to maintain. In Eurasia, as much as in the West, the invasion of Ukraine has created a precarious, dangerous future. Since you can speak Ukrainian, I'll say thank you in Ukrainian. Дякую тобі дуже, що знайшов час. Було дуже цікаво тебе послухати. Навзаєм, абсолютно, я дуже радий був. From Message Heard and the Kyiv Independent, you're listening to Powerlines, from Ukraine to the world. In this series, we're going to be mapping the undercurrents and global consequences of the war in Ukraine, beginning in Kyiv and following the roads out wherever they may lead. I'm Jakub Parushinsky. And I'm Anastasia Lapatina. This week, we're talking about the Eurasian region surrounding Russia to explore just how destabilizing the war in Ukraine has been to all the countries that lie on Russia's periphery to the south and east. I'm really excited about today's episode because I feel like our listeners will love it because this topic is not something that's very often discussed in the media or in podcasts or just in general in the public discussion of the war in Ukraine. Everyone just kind of tends to ignore the Caucasus and, and Central Asia. But let's first start with defining what Eurasia even is, Jakub. Eurasia is essentially this idea that pops up a little bit over 100 years ago of Russia being a distinct civilization between Europe and Asia. Right. And it's very much the territory of the Russian Empire, something that Russians also like to call their near abroad, the territories that they influence. Over the past couple of decades. It's been revived by people like Alexander Dugin, who is uh, famously and somewhat erroneously considered to be an ideological leader of, of sort of this Putinist expansionism. Over the last couple of decades, this idea is reviving. And as we go along, Russia also creates a bunch of institutions to formalize this uh, Eurasianism, mm -hmm. whether it's the Commonwealth of Independent States, which appears after the dissolution of the USSR and includes basically everybody except for the Baltic states, and then later the CSTO, as well as the Eurasian Union. Wait, Jakob, before you go on, the Eurasian Economic Union, was it, and the CSTO, what are those? Russia has this tradition of mimicking what is uh, done in the West. So the Eurasian Economic Union is essentially a crooked mirror version of the European Union, and the CSTO is a crooked mirror version of NATO. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> Why are we looking at what's happening in Eurasia? Well, I think it's interesting that this part of the world is, first of all, just geographically enormous, and it is also very closely tied to Russia, which is, you know, this huge attempting to be a hegemon kind of state, which, you know, has been at everyone's radar for so long. But few people tend to care about the brutal Russian imperial history that has affected all of these countries that are within 
this space that we're talking about. Almost every country in this space has had some sort of huge tragedy perpetrated by the Russian state. And for us, right, like for people who are surrounding Russia, this is just a part of the deal. I would say equally, it was very much an integral part of the the Russian Empire and then of the Soviet Union and all of the tragedies that came along with that. But it's also a source of great wealth. Oh, absolutely. And authoritarians, too. Yeah, absolutely. So it's very much a club of authoritarian countries these days, surrounded by other authoritarian countries. I mean, you've got Russia, China, Iran, Turkey Mm -hmm. bordering this zone. And then within it, you've got Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, some of the most authoritarian and and anti-democratic countries on the planet. So who did you speak to this week? Well, Jakub, I'm honestly thrilled to tell you because when it comes to looking at Russia and Putin and the enormous global consequences of Russia's war in Ukraine, there are very, very few people who are more qualified to speak on this than our guest this week, Fiona Hill. Fiona has served under three U.S. presidents, first as an intelligence analyst focusing on Russia and Eurasia for the National Intelligence Council, and more recently as the senior director for European and Russian affairs on the National Security Council staff. She's currently a senior fellow at Brookings in Washington, and she's also, on top of all of that, the author of various books about Russian politics, including the incredible book called Mr. Putin, Operative and the Kremlin. So first, I wanted to speak to her about Russia itself and the huge number of ethnic minorities who live within its borders, just to understand how this history and this diversity of Russia is affecting the world today. So I wanted to start with, of course, Russia and the Russian Federation, and specifically the Federation part, because I feel like a lot of people have this idea of Russia being sort of a homogenous entity. But in fact, Russia has a very, very difficult federalist structure, right? It has all of these republics that are all equal subjects to the Russian Federation, have, you know, their own laws, their own politicians, etc. So maybe you could talk a bit about how that maybe historically developed and how that functions and and why Russia is the way it is and, and whether it is indeed homogenous or whether there's a lot of diversity there. Well, no, thanks very much, Nastia. And obviously, that's a pretty critical question for thinking about the war in Ukraine in this context as well, because we always assume that Russia is monolithic. And in fact, um, you know, Vladimir Putin and those around him in the Kremlin would like us to think so, because going back to 2004 and in the wake of the Beslan attacks when uh, Chechen rebels seized mm-hmm. um, a school in Beslan in uh, the North Caucasus, the Russian government used that as an opportunity to impose what they called the vertical of power, mm-hmm. which was in many respects eroding some of the autonomy of the different regions of uh, the Russian Federation that had really emerged since the dissolution of the Soviet Union and in the kind of political and economic and social chaos of the 1990s. And what we saw in the you know, initial construction of the Russian Federation, the Soviet period, was a kind of mirroring of the Soviet Union writ large. So just as in the 1920s, you had the constituent Soviet republics set up, the Russian Federation and Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, you know, etc. Inside of Russia itself, you had, as you described, this really complicated series of different subjects of the Russian Federation, which reflect in part history, 
different cultures, different ethnicities, and in some cases, different forms of political control. And in the 1990s, that all started to fall apart. There were parts of the Russian Federation that basically tried to follow the same path of the Soviet Union towards dissolution, most notably, of course, Chechnya, of course. which had a population of over a million had a special status uh, within the Russian Federation. And through a very close reading of the Russian constitution, felt that they also had a right to apply for independence from the Russian Federation, just as the other constituent republics had become independent of the Soviet Union. And in the 1990s, there was a whole process under President Boris Yeltsin at the time to create a set of arrangements almost for complete devolution of authority, including some degrees of fiscal devolution, not just political authority, with some of the most complicated parts of the Russian Federation. Chechnya was one, which of course was wracked by uh, war and conflict uh, with Russia, but also Tatarstan in uh, the Urals region, which had historical uh, rights to a certain degree of autonomy from Moscow, going back, in fact, to the period of Catherine the Great. And in 1994, there was a conclusion of a separate agreement between Moscow and Tatarstan Mm -hmm. that then became a model for other bilateral agreements between Moscow and other regions, including some regions that had no different ethnic religious or any kind of uh, cultural difference in the center, but just that they you know, were, were trying to exert their own autonomy. Now, along came Beslan. Vladimir Putin was already four years into his presidency. He had obviously been completely opposed to this devolutionary activity, and he wanted to bring everything back to the center again. And he used Beslan mm-hmm. and uh, the atrocities uh, of course, there's a lot of controversy around what actually happened in Beslan, whether that was also yeah. to some degree, you know, instigated by the Russian services mm-hmm. themselves. But nonetheless, that was used as an excuse to overturn most of these autonomous arrangements and to reimpose the central authority of the state, both politically and fiscally, which we saw kind mm-hmm. of unfolding over the subsequent period. And in some of those republics, right, so for example, Buryatia, Yakutia, or the Republic of Saha, Dagestan, we are seeing not only huge mobilization efforts by the Russian government, but also, you know, protests against that in some places. Why do you think the Kremlin is targeting ethnic minorities and its mobilization? Because to an average observer, I think a lot of them seem very poorly trained. And then also, you know, places like Buryatia, that's nearly 6,000 kilometers away from Ukraine. So why bother and spending the resources to move all of these people to the front as well? So what are the motivations here? Why not just mobilize, you know, people around Moscow or St. Petersburg or anywhere closer to Ukraine? Well, there's some pretty obvious answers to this. But first of all, you know, this is an old imperial as well as Soviet tactic. Mm-hmm. You know, when you looked at other wars that the Soviet Union engaged in and Afghanistan and, and elsewhere, there was a lot of mobilization of citizens of the Soviet Union from Central Asia, for example. They were also, you know, kind of from impoverished areas with very little political clout. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they were um, obvious targets uh, for, you know, conscription and then recruitment and then dispatching into um, these conflicts. There is another element in the case of Ukraine, uh, for example, that you don't want people who would necessarily identify themselves too closely to Ukrainians. But look, there's a long tradition in all empires of sending conscript forces from the periphery to fight in your wars. Also, what um, Russia has tried to do consistently 
and its uh, more modern wars, including in you know Chechnya and elsewhere, has tried to avoid a concentration of casualties in places where that would have a political impact. Mm-hmm. So if there was a huge number of casualties from St. Petersburg and Moscow, there would be backlash. If there are casualties from far-flung regions, as you say, thousands of miles away from Moscow, it's much more difficult for people to have the protest impact felt. Yeah. And if you spread out the casualties across the whole country, then you don't get these concentrations of of deaths and injuries that could again, you know, lead to protests. Now, of course, there has actually been concentrations of uh, casualties. We are seeing large numbers of casualties from places like Buryatia, from Dagestan and other places that are producing a backlash. So, you know, this doesn't always work. And of course, we've seen now with the efforts to mobilize uh, forces on a much larger scale, including from St. Petersburg and Moscow, an outflux, the flight of uh, young men from all of those cities, showing very clearly that they're protest with their feet, uh, this effort to uh, drag them into the war. The the whole challenge of Russia and the danger of Russia is that it's this kind of multicultural, multi-ethnic empire mm-hmm. that essentially has to constantly manage and manipulate all of these different nations, tribes, creeds, both across its border regions, but also inside. And that is something that Russia utilizes to conquer new territories. It essentially goes out and tries to incorporate them. But then once you have all of these people inside, that's actually kind of difficult to manage. Of course. And if you look at the Russian Federation, it's got all of these different forms of federation. Like There isn't one type of state. There's a dozen of them. And so these nations are essentially a source of great weakness for Russia as well. You mean like the minorities within Russia or like the republics within Russia? Yes, I think, well, that's what has created today's Russia. And that's what also is the potential trigger for the instability that everyone is afraid of. If all of a sudden Russia is seen as weak, which it is right now, I think very much so. Ukraine has proven that Russia is not as strong as it it seems. Well, you know, what prevents the Dagestanis, the Chechens, uh, the Tatars, the all of these other nations to rise up and demand independence? It is a very, very sad situation in my eyes because this diversity is incredible. I mean, the amount of cultures, the amount of different religions and languages, all of these could be flourishing, right? But this imperial and then Soviet past has just like killed any hope now, right? Because we're not seeing some sort of full-scale upheavals. You know, I think Fiona also goes into this. The minorities, the nations, they are part of the way that you manage this country Mm -hmm. because you send soldiers from distant regions to fight and, and die in other ones. But, you know, frankly, Lenin put it best. Russia is the prison of nations, right? (laughs) <laughs> Never thought I'd say that or agree with that, but yes, that is that is true. And so now the problem is that the gang that has been running this prison is in trouble. The Ukrainians have been talking about the fact that, you know, Russia has to disintegrate, that the, the, the perfect outcome for all of us is if 
you know, all of these minorities that are incorporated in the Kremlin's machine might start finally realizing that they're being used as cannon fodder and, and start demanding some sort of independence or succession or something like that. Do you think the sort of awakening of minorities is possible or is this just wishful thinking? No, I think minorities have been actually awake the entire time, but they mm -hmm. have been suppressed in their ability to exert any influence because of this vertical of power that's been, you know, steadily imposed over the last uh, 20 years, you know, since Beslan mm -hmm. and the reversal of many of these agreements on autonomy that were concluded in the 1990s. So I'm look, I'm not sure that we should be really aiming for the disintegration of Russia here. I think that could have all kinds of unintended consequences, to be very clear. But it's the reassertion of what used to be Rasia, the Rasiski Federatsi, mm -hmm. not the Ruski Federatsi. Because what Putin and others around him have been trying to emphasize is this 80% so-called ethnic Russian civilizational core with most people being Russian Orthodox. And that yeah. is not actually the multinational, multicultural, multiconfessional Russian Federation. And Putin himself, right up until his return to the presidency in 2011 and 12, when he started going on and on and on about Russia and Ukraine being one nation and all of the ties there, was very careful to always emphasize this broader conception of Rossiya not Russia. And the definition mm -hmm. for, you mm -hmm. know, kind of non-Russian speakers is significant here. It was an idea of Russia as a more civic, citizen-based, multi-ethnic, multi-confessional, multilingual uh, state, as opposed to something that was narrowly defined about Russia, Russian language, and Russia orthodoxy. And this was the lesson that was taken away from the 1990s, that the Russian Federation could have fallen apart in the same way that the Soviet Union did because of all of these differences internally, regionally, you know, geographically, mm -hmm. And in terms of, you know, the different identities and, you know, Putin had spent a lot of time, like Yeltsin before him, creating and crafting a larger identity. He's thrown all of that out the window. So actually, I think Putin is getting himself into problems by this narrow definition of the war, this fixation on Ukrainians having to be Russian because there's the dominance of the Russian language or the or of orthodoxy, for example, and of the, uh, the church. It's actually opening back up again the fissures that we saw emerging in the late Soviet period and also in the 1990s, during the early days of uh, the Russian Federation. Right. So it all goes back to Russia kind of grappling with its colonial past. You know, so all of the, this is something that Ukrainians talk about constantly, but clearly... Uh, it's, a pure, it's a purely colonial war. Exactly. It's a war of, you know, the restoration of, of empire in Putin's um, own mind here. I mean, I often make the parallel that this is very similar to if, if the United Kingdom tried to retake Ireland. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, Ireland was colonized by the English centuries and centuries ago, long before Russia was even, you know, on the map. Mm -hmm. And of course, when Ireland got its independence, which is about the same time as uh, the Russian Revolution and the kind of the, ultimately the uh, creation of the Soviet Union, there was part of Ireland that was left independent of the new Irish state still within the United Kingdom. Ulster, the northern part, which had been very heavily settled by, you know, Protestants and you know, British, Scots and, uh, and elsewhere, very similar to Donbass. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that conflict, you know, has continued for a considerable period of time. So if, if England suddenly decided that it wanted to, you know, reincorporate Ireland back into the United Kingdom, we'd be in the same kind of problem that we see that we see today. And I think that, you know, people persist in thinking somehow of Ukraine, this is people on the outside, as part of 
Russia because of that kind of imperial conquest mm-hmm. and that, you know, kind of imperial exertion of authority. But it's no different what Russia is doing than from any other old imperial power in trying to, you know, retake territory by conquest that has, you know, long moved away. You know what all of this really reminds me of? What? Is this idea of Prometheism. Okay, what is that? This all goes back to interwar Poland, which has just become independent from the Russian Empire, has just fought a war against the Soviet Union, and is very worried about further aggression from the East. And... During this time, they essentially come up with this idea that they call Prometheism, which sort of goes back to the Greek god Prometheus, who stole fire from the gods and gave it to mankind in a symbol of enlightenment and resistance to democracy. And basically what they want to do is they want to reach out and support all the non-Russian nations that inhabit, you know, the, the, the Baltic, Black, Caspian Sea basins with a message that emphasizes, you know, freedom, uncompromising stance towards autocracy, and the need to rise up against Russian oppression. Sounds great so far. And if you look at that policy, which is essentially, you know, rather than tackling Russia head on, it's fighting Russia through a hundred different battlefields. Mm -hmm. That is actually the policy that now Zelensky has adopted. Right. So couple of months ago now. I don't know if you remember, there was this video of Zelensky. Oh, of course. That speech was unforgettable. Well, he's in Kiev and he's next to a monument of a hero of Dagestan and Chechnya. And he has this kind of speech that, uh, you know, Ukraine honors and knows the heroes of Dagestan and Chechnya. We believe in you. We believe in your fight against Russian authoritarianism. And very soon after that, the Ukrainian parliament recognizes Ichkeria, which is the name of Chechnya, the independent version, as a occupied territory by Russia. Boom. Beautiful. I love that. Exactly the, the same sort of philosophy, you know, 80 years later, back in play. Okay, that was my really excited part about, about Prometheism. But it it really does raise a question of, is it possible for there to be new hotspots and new theaters to appear for the war? And I guess the answer is they kind of already have, just not within Russia, but within the regions abroad, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Armenia, Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. Um, war is all over Russia's doorsteps. You're totally right. And... I was really happy to hear Fiona mention how this is, you know, a typical colonial war because Eurasia really should be set in this context of colonialism. Everything that happens here in this region has been affected in one way or another by Russian colonialism, be it language, literature, etc. So I think this is really important for people to understand. And this goes back to something we talked about in the beginning of the episode that This kind of imperialism is just not discussed, really. Let's move beyond Russia and transition into talking about Central Asia and the Caucasus. So all of this huge territory is what we'd call, for lack of a better term, it's a Russian sphere of influence. And I I know it's a big task, but if you could put it simply, what is Russia currently doing there? What is its role? Well, look, it's it's quite complicated because, you know, as you're suggesting there, there's this history of conquest, but there's also a history of war 
among between Russia and other neighboring empires, the Ottoman Empire. So, you know, Turkey becomes an element in all of this. And it's important mm-hmm. to bear that in mind when we think about the way that Turkey and Russia face off in the Black Sea. We've also got to remember Iran, because in terms of the Caucasus, again, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, there was Iranian influence there, part of the Persian Empire, which also bled into parts of Central Asia as well. And then look, even China, you know, when we kind of, you know, start to think about, uh, you know, the kind of larger influence in Central Asia, Xinjiang, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, you know, the kind of back and forth of populations across, you know, those borders there, Uyghurs in in addition to Mm -hmm. Kyrgyz and Kazakhs, for example. Russia doesn't operate in a vacuum. So when we say, what is Russia doing there? Russia's also having to kind of bear in mind, you know, what some of its earlier imperial enemies and, you know, kind of contemporary seeming allies are up to. And there's a lot of back and forth. And what we've seen is before the invasion of Ukraine, I think Russia was fairly confident that it had the upper hand Mm -hmm. in all of the relationships in the Caucasus and Central Asia. Although China was emerging in Central Asia as a major economic and trading power. But since the war, and particularly since its massive setbacks on the battlefield in Ukraine, Russia's star has faded. And we're now seeing, you know, the emergence of a backlash and pushback in Central Asia. There was this remarkable video of the Tajik uh, President Rahman berating Putin for his lack of respect and offhand treatment of Tajiks and others in Central Asia. We've seen Kazakhstan and others pulling away from Russia, even though, you know, last year it looked like Kazakhstan was increasingly dependent on Russia after Russia intervened to prop up current President Takayev after, you know, a whole bunch of internal disputes. And, you know, Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan, you know, also exerting their own attempts at autonomy. And, you know, Armenia is trying to seek a way of resolving its long-standing disputes and problems with Turkey. Azerbaijan, of course, taking huge advantage of the war in Ukraine to press its advantage in Nagorno-Karabakh in Armenia by, you know, reigniting uh, the conflict there. We're actually sort of seeing that it's very difficult for Russia to remain the arbiter of all of the events in the neighborhood. So it's setbacks on the battlefield in Ukraine. It's also seeing setbacks in its once dominant relationship in places like the Caucasus and Central Asia. But I I, I see here now a complete shift in the dynamic from what it was prior to February 2022. Now let's turn to Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, because both of these countries actually are members of this Russian-dominated CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which for our listeners is this Moscow-led alliance made of Armenia, Kazakhstan, Russia, Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan, and it's essentially Russia's Eurasian NATO. So when in mid-September these two countries began fighting it off, it really seemed to observers like it's a trend. It's if certain countries were seizing the moment when Putin's attention is elsewhere in Ukraine. Is this something that's beginning to happen? Is there a particular correlation between the fact that you know, Putin is is doing his own thing and, and these countries kind of reigniting the conflicts that have been frozen for some time? Yes. Yeah, so look, I mean, I think what we have to bear in mind here is there were a lot of contested borders after the collapse of the Soviet Union, both internally, you know, within um, states and also externally on, you know, the kind of the borders between the states, the borders that were inherited from the dissolution yeah. of the Soviet Union. 
And then, of course, there's that huge border with China that extends all the way from Central Asia through Russia. Because what Putin has done in invading Ukraine twice, you know, in 2014, annexing Crimea and then sparking off all the war in Donbass, and then again in 2022, has basically said things have changed the borders of the former Soviet Union, the borders of the newly independent states, not so newly independent, but the the established states, are now up for grabs. So all of those conflicts that have existed since the time of the dissolution of the Soviet Union and some that, you know, have preceded it, are now, in effect, reignited by what Russia's done. That's why it's so critical to address what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Because, as you mentioned, there there are disputes between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. There are disputes in the Himalayas between India and China, for example, or in you know the the borders where uh, Tajikistan you know kind of abuts there. There are you know old disputes you know that go along the border with Afghanistan, as well as disputes going along the borders with Iran and Turkey. You know, so this is again a potential disaster. May India and Pakistan probably have something to say too. Well, well, exactly, in Kashmir and elsewhere, not to mention all of the disputes that China has with every single one of its neighbors about territory, and ultimately could have with Russia itself, because vast swathes of territory in the Russian Far East along the Amur River Mm -hmm. and extending east of Baikal, you know, out to Vladivostok, this is all territory that was taken in the 1860s. Right. This was what we were grappling with in the work of World War II and during the Cold War, how to, you know, basically acknowledge as settled the territorial disposition that Europe and Eurasia and the rest of the world found itself in, um, you know, as a result of the dissolution of empires. You know, what Putin has done is basically put everything up for grabs, so it's no surprise that all of the territorial conflicts are being fought out again. Jakub, you were in Georgia recently. Tell us what what is it like there? I know a bunch of Russians are walking around demanding that everybody speaks Russian with them and stuff like that. Well, that at least that wasn't really my feeling. Yes, there are a lot of Russians right now, but they seem rather meek. Everyone feels like the fact that they have a place to live, to sleep, to eat, that is not in Russia, where they won't be mobilized and sent uh, to the trenches of Ukraine, makes them feel rather grateful. And they do realize that their existence in Georgia is precarious. Okay, Georgia at any moment could essentially ask them to return, not not renew their stays or kick them out in some other way. So there is a very feeling of, please, please don't kick us out. So, look, one thing that we haven't talked about is there's now been two wars involving CSTO members. And Mm -hmm. just for context, CSTO, this sort of Russian equivalent of NATO, is supposed to prevent war, especially like in the case of Armenia and Azerbaijan, where Armenia is a CSTO member, Azerbaijan is not. Aggression of a non-member on a member should result in some kind of action. It didn't. Of course. Like, how big of a price is Russia going to pay for this? Like, has it already lost its power in Central Asia, the Caucasus, Eurasia? Right. It was so bizarre and interesting to see how, right, like when the whole conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia reignited and Armenia asked Russia for help, but Russia did pretty much nothing. And Armenians went on to protest demanding that the government withdraws from the CSTO because it's useless and isn't actually being helpful. 
And like literally a few days later, Pelosi, the U.S. House Speaker, lands in Yerevan. Shows up in Yerevan. And is like, U.S. is firmly with Armenia. The U.S. has always supported Armenia and will always continue to support Armenia. And I was just like, everyone knows what they're doing. Like, if, I mean, and of course, this is just how diplomacy works. They get it. But in that specific instance, the timing was so quick. Like, the U.S. jumped on this ship immediately. Yeah. Russia is in such deep shit, excuse me, in Ukraine that like the the hope for Armenia that Russia is going to intervene and do something is very small. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, this isn't a vacuum, as Fiona pointed out. You know, you have China, you have Iran, you have Turkey, you have the US who are all looking to step in and and shape the region. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really hard to understate what a massive strategic mistake and self-own um, the invasion of Ukraine has been. I wanted to find out some more about these difficult implications for India and China next, and I felt like this was the perfect way to end this episode. Moving sort of southeast, we should also probably talk about the two biggest players, arguably, in all of this Eurasian mess being China and India. And both countries are, of course, very close to Russia. Together, I think they buy roughly half of all Russian exported oil, which is a huge amount, and also huge amounts of Russian weapons. But in the light of the war in Ukraine, it looks like both of them are starting to be a bit cautious about their relationship with Putin. Are you seeing this too? Yes, I think, you know, for China, obviously, and President Xi, we've just seen the, the party congress and the way that he has consolidated right. his power, admitting that he'd made any kind of mistake in his limitless partnership and support for Putin ahead of the war in Ukraine would be very difficult. He doesn't look like somebody who's ever ready to admit it is uh, a mistake. But we have seen China behaving very cautiously. And, you know, I still live in some hope that China will exert some constraint and restraint on Russia, particularly when it comes to you know some of the more extreme contemplations on the part of Putin about using nuclear weapons, for example. That would mm-hmm. be deeply destabilizing for China as well. Not just you know, of course, the dreadful impacts that that would have, because China isn't in, I, I think, in the mood to see the destabilizing the strategic nuclear balance globally, which would have impacts in its own region. Putin is making the case for, you know, basically the dilution, really of China's strategic position as being the dominant nuclear power apart from the United States and the Asia-Pacific region. If I was South Korea and Japan and any other neighbor, I'd be you know, wanting to have a nuclear weapon. So I think China sees that there's complexity here. And you know, we'll have to just watch very carefully what China does. For India, I think the whole situation is nightmarish. India relied heavily on Russian uh, military mm-hmm. capability, training weapons, you know, and of course, you know, Russia will not be in a position now to boost India's military forces and, you know, equipment and ammunition because of the war in Ukraine. And India, of course, you know, has continued to stand off with Pakistan, uh, complications, very difficult relationship with China. And what India was looking to Russia was, was support against potential conflict with China, which seems highly unlikely now. Yeah. I mean, Russia seems very much in China's camp. The support from China is critical for Putin. And if there's another outbreak of hostilities in the Himalayas, like we saw a couple of years ago, India could not rely on Russia in any way, I think. But, you know, India, I think, finds itself in an extraordinary difficult position. But I think India has a lot of disquiet and doesn't want to find, you know, that it's 
as as a result of all of this in a massive rift with Russia, United States, China. It basically wants to somehow balance all of this off. And that is, of course, impossible under the current circumstances. But of course, as you said, India is cashing in. It's getting cheaper uh, oil. This is just my personal reflections from what you said, but it really doesn't seem to be benefiting anybody like at all. No. This war is a lose-lose proposition for absolutely everyone on the planet. I mean, basically, you know, I've said in other interviews, Vladimir Putin is behaving like it's the 1780s when, you know, we're already in, you know, the end game for climate, COVID, you know, all of these existential crises for humanity. Right. And he's behaving as if we have, you know, hundreds of years still to play out and we absolutely don't. So to wrap this all up, it's clear that Russian influence in the region is weakening. As my um, the co-host of this podcast, Jakub, my colleague, as he put it, it's almost as if this is a puzzle where Russia is so involved in all of these different countries, you know, in the Caucasus and Central Asia. And now once it starts pulling away and its influence is declining and its power is declining, that everything almost starts to fall apart. Is there going to be more instability? I mean, I know predictions are stupid in a way, but... Well, there's inevitably more instability from all of this. I mean, the invasion of Ukraine is an inherently destabilizing act that has global reverberations. This is why I've said many times that this is another world war-like scenario with great power conflict, with the unraveling of the global order and implications for pretty much every country out there. Russia's manipulation of, of the narrative causes instability. You know, Russia's out there with the Wagner group propping up, you know, dictators and regimes and hunters, you know, from, you know, Africa and elsewhere. And committing atrocities too. You know, so everything that Russia is doing at the moment, unfortunately, is inherently destabilizing. I mean, this is not, you know, a one or even, you know, two or three dimensional conflict or war here. As I said, we need to have every perspective brought in. This is global. And there have been the effects on food security and energy and climate change because we're not tackling any of these, you know, issues. We're losing time. We need to have international cohesion and coherence of you know, what we're going to do on some of these critical issues. Yeah. Putin is making it impossible for any kind of international cooperation. And he's destroying in one of the critical countries for you know thinking about climate change and the sustainability of agriculture in the form of Ukraine. Ukraine was going to, mm-hmm. is a global breadbasket, not just a regional breadbasket. And this is absolutely and utterly disastrous. I mean, there are so many tragic parts of this, but in actual fact, you know, there's some very capable Russian diplomats. And, you know, there there hasn't always been everything negative about Russian diplomacy and Russian foreign policy. You know, Russia actually has in the past and in the recent past played some, you know, important roles in creating diplomatic frames. The war in Tajikistan, you know, comes to mind, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, in some of the settings as well. But that's all out the window at the moment. You know, so the the kind of the role that Russia could play that could actually be destabilizing some of these places by trading on some of these past relationships is being distorted by these exigencies of basically getting a victory at any cost and every cost in Ukraine. Thank you so much again for finding the time. It was fascinating to listen to you. Thank you so much, Nastya. It was a pleasure. In two weeks in Power Lines, we will be speaking with Oliver Bullo, the writer and investigative journalist, to explore the rise and recent fall of oligarchies from Moscow to Kyiv and then across the world. 
If you want to further support us, you can subscribe to our ad-free feed on Apple and by looking up Powerlines Plus on Spotify. You can also support The Cave Independent by finding us on our Patreon to get behind-the-scenes content. Go to patreon.com slash caveindependent to continue helping us report on the most important stories in Ukraine. Look up Message Heard wherever you're listening to this podcast for more of our original shows and find us on our website at messageheard.com or on our Powerlines Twitter at PowerlinesPod as well as Instagram and Facebook by looking up at Message Heard. You can also follow The Cave Independent on Twitter and Facebook at Cave Independent and Instagram at Cave Independent underscore official to get the latest news and stay up to date with our coverage. Please also subscribe and rate Powerlines in your podcast app as it really helps others find our show. Powerlines is a partnership between the Kyiv Independent and Message Heard. It was produced by B. Duncan, Harris Todd, and Talia Agustidis. The executive producer is Sandra Ferrari. The theme music is by Tom Biddle and Alfie Godfrey. 